The following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Let me encourage you to find your place in Acts chapter 28. Today is the final uh, message from the book of Acts. We've actually studied through the entire book and we've come to today from verse 11 to the end of the book, verse 31. And so there's a few questions, and I, I'll just have to tell you, I don't want to foreshadow too much, but I have to tell you that the more I studied this, the worse it got. <laughs> and I, let me clarify. Uh, the more difficult it got, the more challenging it got, and then by the time last night got here, it was just almost downright hurtful. And I hope that will make more sense by the time we get done. But let me just, as you find your place, Acts chapter 28, we're going to be starting in verse 11. Let me ask a couple of questions. And you don't have, I don't need you to necessarily answer out loud. I just want you to think about it. Think about what the answer, the answer to each of these questions is. And hopefully that will help us uh, be prepared for what we're going to read and then uh, what we talk about as we see what the Scripture says. Here's the first question. And I know we haven't read the Scripture yet, and, but you may have read it already. So here's the question. What was the future of the church at the end of Acts 28, verse 31? What was the future of the church? You know, because we started Acts, it was the birth of the New Testament church. So consider... What was the future of the church by the end of Acts? Okay, here's the second question. What is the future of the church today? Now, if for some reason the answers to those two questions is different, then here's the last question. What changed? If we go through the whole book of Acts and see... Jesus ascend into heaven and tell his disciples they're going to receive power through the Holy Ghost and uh, they're going to be witnesses everywhere beginning in Jerusalem and then that happens and the church is birthed and uh, amazing things just happen over and over and over and over. And we get to the end of the book of Acts today in our study and we think about the future of the church and then we consider the future of the church on March 21st, 2021, almost 2,000 years literally past the events that we're studying. What's changed? Now, I don't want to delay any further. I, just, I think we just need to read the Scripture, see what it says, and see how it applies to us so we can talk. I think that's going to be maybe even more important than normal today. Here's what the Bible says, Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there we sailed around and arrived at Regium, and a day after, a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found some brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. 
and thus we came to Rome. So there it is, the long-awaited destination. Verse 15. And the brethren, when they heard about us, they came from there as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. After three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. When they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. When he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you will speak to us today. I pray that you will put away any kind of opinions from me or uh, thoughts that I might have. i got pages of notes here and things that I prepared to say, but if any of it's not what I should say, then I pray that you'll just guide me through it. Help me to say only what you want me to say, what's helpful and edifying for your people and for, for me too. But in all this that we're about to talk about, Lord, I pray that Jesus would be lifted up. 
So help me, help us, help us to read and understand, and then help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I just have to tell you, like I said before, as we move through this more and more, I started to see some similarities to Paul's final chapter of his journey and his experiences and all these churches he had planted, all the letters he had written, and then the similarities started to pop up between what he was doing and what we're supposed to be doing. And it kind of made me think more and more and more as I, as I read and studied and, and considered what we were about to talk about today, coming to a close with our study of this, this entire book of Acts and seeing it in context and all the, the ebb and flow, kind of the roller coaster ride of Paul's ministry and all the things that happened throughout there. And uh, man, it just got, it's just got more and more difficult. So what, I, what I'd like to do is to kind of summarize what happens because the first section here is basically the final leg of the journey. So I'm going to summarize where they went, how that happened, and then we really get to things that, that uh, are more, um, I think, in line with his ministry, Paul's ministry, when we get to verse 16 and really verse 17. That's when the final stages of his uh, experience are given to us in three sections. So let's start off in verse 11 and just see that Paul arrives at Rome... There's a time frame here because I told you this last week. Three months went by. When we, when we left off in verse 10 last week, three months went by before they set sail again. Okay, So that's let me give you a summary. John Stott, who has gone on to be with the Lord now, but a, a wonderful scholar, he kind of summarizes the travel route for this final portion of Paul's journey. So here's what happened. First, they sailed from Malta, which is that island where they were, in a northeasterly direction to Syracuse, which is the capital of Sicily. Okay? They stayed, stayed there three days. Then they sailed further north and put in at Regium, which is on the toe of Italy. You know, Italy looks like a boot, so it's on the toe of Italy. Third, the next day they sailed on with the benefit of a southerly wind, and they made such excellent progress that by the following day, they had traveled the approximately 200 miles uh, to the Gulf of Naples, Italy. And they stayed a week with some Christian brothers and sisters, possibly while Julius, who was the centurion, was awaiting his final instructions regarding the prisoners. And the fourth lap of the journey was by land, not by sea. Okay? So when we get down here uh, to, let's see, verse 15... You see that the, the, some other brethren had heard about them and they had come down this road called the Appian Way. You see there's a place there, the Market of Appius. This is the, maybe the straightest road uh, that leads from, from where they were to the city of Rome. And so some people actually came out to meet them. So they traveled, some, some two groups probably, because there's two different locations and they're not in the same place. So you probably have some people who came from Rome some Christians that traveled some 30 miles and some on another about 42 miles total to meet Paul because they heard he was coming. So they couldn't wait for him to get to the city. They went out to meet him. And so here's the thing, though. In all that, before we really get into the final chapter of Paul's experience, as we're told in Scripture, they got there safely, right? They had a lot of trouble along the way, but they got there safely. And so... Here's the interesting thing. If you look back in verse 11, 
the last part of that verse, you see this reference to the twin brothers. So I want you to see that because it's not really all that important of a detail except for the fact they mention it because the you know how some ships you see like a like a little uh, carving of a of a not a not a like a bust you know where they used to do like a a, a figure of someone's face or a, a character on the front of a ship kind of like leading the way well that's what it's talking about this particular ship had a carving of the twin sons of the Greek god Zeus. That's what it's referring to. So we say, well, why does that matter? Okay, well, it doesn't except for the fact that the people sailing on these ships put a great deal of confidence in what their ship looked like. Who was it representing? So is this because it's the twin brothers and they happen to be sons of the Greek god Zeus who's supposed to be awesome, so is that going to protect them from any danger on their trip, right? So that, that was their belief. But here's the thing. How did Paul get to Rome safely? Was it because of a Greek god? Was it because of the carving on the front of a ship? No. No. See, uh, one, day, one commentator, David Peterson, says, it's become abundantly clear that Paul's security has everything to do with the goodness of his God. We sang about the goodness of God. The goodness of his God has nothing to do with the whims of pagan deities. See, it doesn't matter what's carved on the front of the ship. What matters is God in heaven saw fit to, to guard Paul's life and get him where he wanted to go. Why is that? Because Jesus told him, you're going to testify in Rome. See, God has a, a plan, and regardless of our willingness to believe what he's doing, he's still doing it. <laughs> he's still protecting us. He's still looking after us. And whether we choose to give him glory for it or not doesn't change the fact that God is almighty and he's in control. And, and, and he can be trusted. So Paul, when he gets to Rome, he's given this extraordinary consideration with regards to where he stays considering he is a prisoner. So you remember that Paul is he's still a prisoner, right? Regardless of the fact that he's been treated a little bit differently. And so he had written the book of Romans about three years previously, telling them about his longing to visit them, his desire to gain their support because he had a, another missionary outreach on the radar that he was wanting to be in, uh, a part of. So here's the thing. In preparation for the conclusion of Acts, which is really, like I said, verse 17 to the end, we really need to consider the importance of this final section. See, the final scene, like in any story, in a play or, or anything like that, the final scene of a narrative is an opportunity to clarify central aspects of the plot and the characters in the preceding story to make this final, lasting impression, right, on the readers. It's kind of building to the end of the story. And so that's what we have here. So the fact that Luke, who is narrating this, has chosen to end the work with a scene that focuses on Paul's encounter with Jewish people, Jewish leaders, it shows how extraordinarily important the issues of this encounter are to Luke, who is also being inspired by the Spirit to write this thing down for us. See, if, if, if God hadn't uh, oversaw that process, we wouldn't be reading this. We wouldn't have this information. 
And so he pointed Luke in the direction of the things that were most important that we needed to know. So when we get to these last three sections, I say that because from verse 17 to the end of the book, it's kind of divided in three little parts. Okay? And so here's what it looks like. Theologically, the hope of Israel is the key idea in this first scene of the final three. It is, and then explaining about the kingdom of God and persuading about Jesus from the law of Moses and the prophets is in the second scene. And then proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus in the third scene. And basically these are all different ways of presenting the same gospel with reference to those from a, a synagogue background like the Jews. And so what we need to see here as we finish up this book that within this kingdom, salvation is extended to everyone who hears and believes the gospel about the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and that's like a summary of the Great Commission, right? Because what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be telling people about Jesus. Isn't that the goal? And that's exactly what we see Paul doing here. So, this is technically number two in our study, but... Uh, it's really the first of the last three. So numbers 2, 3, and 4 in our outline today, the first part being Paul finishes his journey. Numbers 2, 3, and 4 in our outline are going to show us the final three pieces to this puzzle. So number 2 is Paul speaks to the Jews. When we get to verse 17, we see that Paul actually calls together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And so... There was no real official Roman, uh, I guess, dignitary or person who, who had a desire to release Paul, but they certainly say he's not guilty of any crime. And then on two occasions, add that he's not even worthy of being in prison. But yet, here he is. He's in prison. They, they admit that he's not guilty, but he's still here. So the ultimate blame for Paul's present situation is really placed on the authorities from Jerusalem who were not prepared to treat him fairly. So what does Paul want to do in this last part of his experience that we're told of? He wants to share the gospel. Hasn't that been his goal from day one? He always wants... You see, this is what we're going to see about Paul even here at the last part of Acts. His circumstances have really changed a lot. They've been good, they've been bad, they've been kind of mediocre, but they've been like a roller coaster. But you know what's not changed? His call by God, his commission by God, and then his actions to share the gospel, they ha his mode of operation hasn't changed. His circumstances have been all over the map. But he hasn't changed his process. And that's important for us to, to realize. Because he wants to expound the gospel. and He called together the Jews first. Now, I want to just mention something that Paul would write in Romans. In the very first part. He, he wrote this letter about three years ago. And if you're, you've got your Bible open, Acts 28, you really just turn the page and look at Romans 1. Do you remember the first thing, one of the first things Paul says about the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed, which should be painfully obvious to us by this point because of all he's been through for the sake of the gospel. 
But he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And then he says why he's not ashamed. He says, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But look at the next phrase. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek or the Gentile. Now why would he say that? Why would he put that little order in there? Well, let's look back at Acts 28. What's he do in verse 17? Who does he call to him first? The Jews. He's still following this this prescribed order of evangelism. It's not that he's being selective. He's just following a plan. He doesn't stop with sharing with the Jews, but he starts with that. Okay, so in verse 17, he calls together those who were the leading men of the Jews. So his goal is to expound the gospel to them and show them how the resurrection hope of Israel has been fulfilled in the person and work of the Messiah, Jesus. And even after all this opposition he's received, he still believes there's hope for Israel. He would write about that in Romans 11. But he wants to explain that he's a prisoner because he's been seeking to proclaim this realization of God's end-time promises to Jews in every place. So he's still trying to convince the Jewish leaders, hey, you missed Him, but your Messiah's already been here. His name's Jesus. All these prophecies, that's why he goes to the, the Law of Moses and the Prophets. All these things have been fulfilled in the life and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. There is no debate about that. It, it would be a statistical impossibility for Jesus not to be the Messiah. Every single prophecy in the Old Testament fulfilled in one person. Jesus is Lord. End of discussion. And He's trying to convince them, persuade them, show them from the Scriptures that this is the truth. And so, just like his previous encounters with Jewish audiences, his argument for believing in Jesus is taken from the Old Testament law of Moses and the prophets. And so, it was an argument about the fulfillment of Scripture in Jesus. But I want you to see in verse 24, this moves us to the next section, number 3. Paul is going to turn to the Gentiles. Because in verse 24, we read these profound and terrible words some were being persuaded, others would not believe. Have you ever encountered that? Have you ever mentioned Jesus, talked about the gospel, tried to share this message with anyone? Some were being persuaded, but others would not believe. And it seems like, do you ever take it personally? Do you ever think, well, it's a reflection on you? Well, did I, did I say it wrong? Or did, did I not explain it clearly enough? Or what's, what's wrong? Why, why won't you believe this? You know, we, we feel so passionately, this is the truth. This is life-saving, life-changing truth. Some would not believe. No matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how passionately you plead with them, they won't believe. So is that a reflection on you? Is it a reflection on, on me and my presentation of the gospel? Well, maybe, but probably not. 
You know how I know that? Because I've seen people get saved when in human terms we might say, gosh, that was the most messed up, convoluted presentation of the gospel I've ever heard in my life. And guess what? I want to be saved. And why? Uh, Johnny Hunt tells a story where he has preached a sermon and he, he uses these terms. I'm paraphrasing what he said. He said, you know, sometimes I, I've, I've, been, I've prayed up, I've prepared, I've studied, I really feel good about it, and I get up there to preach and sometimes, you know, it just doesn't take off. just never leaves the runway. And he said, and then I get to the end, I'm about to give the invitation, and said, well, all right, we're just going to sing one verse, just one verse of the invitation, just, you know, he, he just can't wait to get out of there. And he comes down front, and he said, we're just going to sing one verse, and he's, he's standing there with his head bowed, praying, he said, Lord, please forgive me, I don't know what happened, I just messed that up so badly. And then next thing he knows, somebody's have walked down the altar and took him by the hand, and he's got tears in his eyes, and he says, I want to be saved. And he goes, are you sure? Because what I just said may not have been that clear. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit of God does not need us to be so perfectly intelligent and clear because He's God. All He needs from us is to be obedient and open our mouths and say something. Because last time I opened the Bible and read it, Jesus saves, I don't. He's choosing to involve me in the Great Commission and sharing the Gospel because He loves me. Why, I don't know. But he's, he's blessing me by being involved. He certainly doesn't need whatever expertise I think I might have. He, he doesn't need that. Okay? And so, some were being persuaded. Some would not believe. So Paul turns to the Gentiles. And so he quotes from the Old Testament when he talks about what's happening here. They didn't agree with one another. You have some believing, some not. So now they're almost like a little a quarrel among them, the two parts of the Jewish audience. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 6. This is one of the longer Old Testament quotes in this book other than chapter 2. And he says... Go to this people, say, you'll keep on hearing, but not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but won't perceive. And so he identifies in verse 25 that it is the Holy Spirit who is the author of Scripture, but he spoke through Isaiah. And he gives this quote from the Old Testament. But see, the thing we should know is that it wasn't Paul's gospel that deafened the people or blinded the people to the truth. It's because the people have grown obtuse or their hearts have become dull so that they don't perceive in the message about Jesus the realization of their own most authentic hope. Paul mentioned the hope of Israel. So he still hasn't given up on the Jews believing that Jesus is the Messiah. So preaching to Jews continued whenever it was possible, but Paul took the message to the Gentiles when Jews rejected it and made it impossible for him to preach in their synagogues. So he was giving them like almost like uh, when you're selling something and somebody says, well, look, if you're going to sell that, uh, give me first crack at it before you, you know, put it out there, right? So it's like first right of a refusal, you know? So that's what he's doing with the gospel. He's not forsaking his ministry to the Jews. He's giving them another chance to hear it, to respond. But when they don't, look at verse 28. 
this is the end of this number three here. Therefore, let it be known to you, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. They're going to hear the message. They're going to receive the message. In fact, back in Acts 13, they were overjoyed because they felt excluded up to that point. And so because of the Jews' deliberate rejection of the gospel, says John Stott, Paul wants them to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they're going to listen with open ears even though the Jews have closed theirs. Now before we go into this final section which really sets us up for our application of this truth here, I just want to mention a detail about verse 29 because that's like a transition between uh, this next to last and the last section. Now, some of your Bibles, you may look and see in the, in the text there that there's brackets around that verse, around verse 29. And the reason for that is because this, is, this reading, it's very late, which means it was not um, in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts. So I don't want to bore you with all that, uh, all that talk about uh, why we put it in brackets and why we think that that one verse may not have been part of the original text. But it's absent from the earliest Greek manuscripts, and, and it, it still kind of represents what must have happened, but it was most likely added. So not want to make a big deal about that one verse, just the fact that it wasn't there in the most earliest uh, original manuscripts. And so in view of this division and the disagreement between the Jews, it's probably not what Luke wrote, but it probably is what happened. So I'm just going to say that and let it be. Okay, that's not really the focus of the text, okay, that one verse. So Paul speaks to the Jews, then Paul turns to the Gentiles, and now the last two verses, and here we are at the conclusion of the text. Paul, number four, Paul welcomes anyone and everyone. Now let's take a minute to let that settle in. Paul welcomes anyone and everyone. Doesn't that make sense? Who is the gospel message meant for? Anyone and everyone. So the book of Acts ends with verse 30 and verse 31 after Paul has intentionally gone to the Jews and then turned to the Gentiles. And then in the last two verses we read that Paul welcomes any who would come to him. Anyone. So the gospel is for anyone and everyone. And Luke emphasizes that he did welcome all who came to see him. It's recalling that promise of salvation for Israel and the Gentiles. But look what it says about how that happened. What was he doing in verse 31? There's two phrases there. In fact, Look at the front of your bulletin. Look on the screen. Look in verse 31. You see these words? Openness. Unhindered. See, without hindrance, that means that, that even though there might have been some military surveillance still going on, like they're still keeping an eye on Paul, there was no ban on his speaking his hand was bound, but his mouth was open for Jesus. 
Even though he was chained, the Word of God was not chained. And so consistently through Acts, as Paul has demonstrated evangelism, it's been shown to involve an announcement of gospel claims, arguments from Scripture, persuasion to repent and believe, Preaching, teaching, exhorting, it constitutes one single act of communication. So when you read these last two verses, it says he's welcoming all, but he's preaching the kingdom of God, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's sharing the gospel. He's telling them the good news. Anyone and everyone. But he's still a prisoner, technically. Now isn't that interesting? I'm going to make a statement here, and it's not mine. John Stott said, Nothing proves the sincerity of our beliefs like our willingness to suffer for them. You want to know how much something means to someone? See how much they're willing to endure to hold on to it. Paul had to suffer. He had to be seen to suffer for the gospel he was preaching. See, Luke's description of Paul preaching with boldness and without hindrance or openness, unhindered, symbolizes a wide open door through which we in our day have to pass. See, the acts of the apostles by the Holy Spirit finished long ago. But the acts of the followers of Jesus will continue until the end of the world. Did you hear what I said? The acts of these apostles ended long ago. But the acts of the followers of Christ will and must continue to the end of the world. The words will be spread to the ends of the earth. So, here's what I have to say in conclusion, and this is the part I've really kind of been, you know, notice I've been kind of glancing down at my watch, and and if truth be told, I wouldn't mind, <laughs> wouldn't mind just kind of skipping over this last page. So, preparing for this message this week has it's caused me or given me the opportunity to do a great deal of self-evaluation. And as I said before, it's kind of caused me some difficulty. So let me explain what that means. So after doing some of that self-evaluation, I realized how many ways I fall short. And, you know, when, when you, if you're going to be honest, and you ask God to say, God, show me what I'm not doing right, or do, show me what I'm doing wrong, show me how I can improve. And then He does, and you're like, oh, well, anytime you want to stop, that would be good. You know, lists just get longer and longer. So I realized, you know, there's so many ways I fall short of God's standards. So I started thinking about just basic, and, and I, I mean that, Literally, basic spiritual disciplines. Okay? If I'm a Christian, if I claim Jesus as my Savior and, and my Lord, and you can't, can't have one without the other, then there should be some things that are in my life that 
are observable, that are, are priorities to me, right? If, if I'm going to call on Jesus and I'm going to say I belong to Him, that means something, right? Y'all all right? Everybody okay? I mean, I hadn't talked about y'all yet. I'm just talking about me. Okay, I'll, I'll get. We'll get to everybody. Don't worry. So I'm just looking at basic spiritual disciplines that are supposed to be present in the life of uh, a follower of Christ. Things like reading the Bible, praying, gathering with the church for worship, giving to support the ministry of the local church, sharing the gospel, and telling people about Jesus. These are distinctive marks of a Christian. See, not just anybody does that. Those are marks of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus. And those are basic. That's Christianity 101. So how am I doing with these distinctive marks of Christianity? So to be honest, there, in some areas I feel like I'm doing all right. In other areas, not so much. So the funny thing about self-reflection is it also often leads you to other questions. Uh, and this time it led me to some pretty unfortunate answers. And so, all right, here, here's how I'm going to finish. I swear I'm, I'm not trying to just take too long, but I'm going to ask everybody in this room, everybody that's watching on this live stream, I'm going to ask all of you the same question that I asked myself. Okay? And, but I need to warn you, it might sting a little bit. You ready? What would this church look like if every Christian followed Jesus exactly like I do? So let me make that a little bit more specific. What if everyone in this church read the Bible as much or as little as I do? What if everyone in this church prayed as much or as little as I do? What if everyone in this church prioritized gathering with God's people for worship the same way I do? What if everyone in the church gave tithes and offerings the same way I do? What if everyone in the church shared the gospel and told people about Jesus with the same consistency and urgency that I do. Now you see, you notice, those questions don't automatically mean that I'm doing well with all of it. It's just an open question. Because here's the temptation. I found, I had to root it out of my own heart, even... Uh, as recently as this morning, last night and this morning, reading back over this, and here, here's the temptation. I ask those questions, those, those specific ones, not just what if everybody lived like I did, but the specific ones, reading the Bible, praying, worshiping, giving, witnessing. And here, here's the temptation. Well, I'm doing pretty good in this one. If everybody did like I did in that area, we'd be all right. You know what that is? Sin, pride, nonsense. There's not a single category 
that I just mentioned where I've got it all in good shape. Even if I think I do. See, because if I think I do, then that just demonstrates I don't. <laughs> See how that works? Yeah. It's like a backhanded compliment. So what, what do we do with that? What do we do with response to that? How, how do we move forward with those questions floating around our minds? Well, it's, it's, it's simpler to say than it is to do. What, what's the mission of the church? Just simply, what is the, not just this church, every church. What's the mission of the church? It's to, it's to follow the great commandment and to follow the great commission. You know what those are? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Everybody. What's the great commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you and I'm with you to the end of the age. Love God. Love others. Make disciples. That's the mission of the church. So how are we doing with that? How am I doing with that? Well, depends on what day you ask me. Right? What about the vision of this church? What's more particular to us? Vision, you know, 2021. John chapter 20, verse 21, where Jesus says, Just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Are we on mission? Are we sent? Or are we holy huddlers? Or, or in, these, in these days, huddled around a computer. Not even huddled together. Our vision for this church was a, is a challenge for every one of us. Read the Bible every day. Pray every day. Consistently, urgently tell people about Jesus. Be on mission locally, nationally, internationally. That, that's been a little bit more difficult because of our circumstances. I understand that. But, so let's tie all this together. You know, we've got tougher times right now. We're still floating through some uncharted waters because of COVID-19. But it kind of just dawned on me at the end of all this. Uh, it's, it's kind of an important and decisive conclusion. And, and it's not all that necessarily all that pleasant. God's call and commission on my life has not changed just because my circumstances have. You know how I know that? Did you see what Paul did? His circumstances changed all the time. You know what didn't change? The gospel. He didn't, he didn't stop. He got arrested and thrown in jail. Guess what he did? Led the, the, the jailers and the the soldiers and everybody else to Jesus. See, it didn't, it didn't change, it didn't stop. I'm still expected to live out my profession of faith even though times are tougher. And, and every follower of Jesus is still supposed to be following Jesus even though times are tougher. Now I know, I know I've fallen short so many times. 
And I know that despite my best efforts, I'm going to continue to fall short. I mean, just it, it's unavoidable. But I just believe that it is, it's long past time for believers everywhere to look at Jesus. And, and, and I'll just throw this in here at the end. Y'all are going to start thinking, well, I don't know why he keeps looking at his watch. He's clearly not paying any attention to it. Um, yesterday, uh, went to Fort Mill and saw a presentation called The Fourth Cross and uh, with 22 of our closest friends. Uh, and... Um, so, so here's, here's the conclusion. I believe we need to look at Jesus and take our calling and commission seriously because if we say it's too hard, we say circumstances are too hard, uh, this is what dawned on me yesterday. I'm glad Jesus didn't say it was too hard. I'm, I'm glad when they took those nails out about that long, bigger than the size of my thumb, started hammering. I'm glad he didn't just say, hey, hey, yeah, all right, that's enough. You know, I'm, I'm God, and, you know, actually, so we're just going to stop right there. This is a little bit too much. Jesus never said that. So I just, maybe I'm naive and, and, and whatever, but I just feel like we need to, I need to. Follow Jesus, for real. No more excuses. Follow Jesus for real. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.